We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Exodus this morning. And this morning we've landed at Exodus 15, is on page 57, page 57 of your Pew Bible, if you'd like to join along with us. If you don't own a copy of the Scriptures, a modern translation of the Scriptures, consider the blue one holding, you're holding in your hand to be yours. Please take it home and read the cover off of it. And Don't bring it back to us. Just come back and get another one and make that one your new Bible. Exodus chapter 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 21. Then Moses said to the people of this then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation this is my God and I will praise him my father's God and I will exalt him the Lord is a man of war The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to be your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage today? Help us to know your mind and help us to sing to you with unfettered praise. May we 
gloriously exalt you as we meditate on you. So fill us with awe at your salvation and redemption that we simply want to burst forth in song. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, it's not a children's church Sunday. The children are up here, and so I like to always have a little something for the children right at the very beginning. Children, when before I started having children, I would say I had a fair amount, or at least I thought I had a fair amount of control in my life. If I wanted better grades, I just studied harder. If I wanted to make more money, I just worked longer hours. But then, we had a baby come into our life. And my wife, being tired as she was from doing baby things, needed her rest. Now children, I want you to know, there are fathers who are unprepared to have babies. There are fathers who were very unprepared to have babies. And then there was me, okay? I didn't know the first thing about babies. So my wife would go to bed nice and early, and I would stay up until, oh, probably one or two in the morning and take care of the baby. And children, when I was taking care of the baby, something happened to me. I suddenly began to be very afraid. I began to be very afraid that something was going to happen to the baby. I was worried the baby was just going to stop breathing. And I would stand at the baby's crib, still as a stone, just watching the baby breathe. Serious. When I would try to go to sleep, I couldn't sleep because I was worried that the baby would stop breathing. Now, mine, I'll let you know, if the baby had stopped breathing, I don't know what I would have done but at least I would have been there to do something. Well, eventually, children, I had to give that fear to the Lord and say, Lord, you love that baby more than I love that baby. And I'm going to lay my head down and sleep and let you take care of the baby. But children, when the baby was ready to eat, the baby would begin to cry. And the baby monitor from the crying would wake me up. It would wake Danielle up too, because it was her turn to get up and feed the baby. But it would wake me up. And here's how worried I was that the baby would stop breathing. When the baby would cry and would wake me up, you know what I would do? I would smile. Because if the baby was crying, the baby was breathing. If the baby was crying, the baby was okay. I would smile and know that my wife was going to get up and take care of the baby, and I would rest a little easier, knowing that the baby was healthy. Children crying for a baby is a good sign. It shows that the baby's hungry. It shows that the baby is full of sleep. Maybe it's a warning to you that the baby has a little present for you in its package that needs to be clean. But crying... For a baby, is a positive sign of health. And for you children and for us adults, I want you to know that just like crying is a sign of health for a baby, 
singing is a sign of help for the redeemed. When people are truly redeemed by the Lord, and they really understand what they were delivered from, and the salvation of their God is imminent, it's right on the front of their minds, and they realize the depth of despair that they were in, they understand the needy position they were in, they understand what it took for God to come down and deliver them. And when they're struck by the facts of their deliverance, they can't help it. They sing. We're commanded many times throughout the Bible to sing. But it's a sort of command that we should already want to do if we're truly redeemed. And this passage right here is one of those spontaneous um, acts of praise that happen in the moment. The passage that we just read demonstrates a lot of things. One of them is the literary prowess of the man Moses. He could write history that's enthralling and compelling. He could, the entire book of Deuteronomy is a contract. It's written in Hittite contract language. And then, he wrote a law code for a nation to follow. And then on the spur of the moment, seemingly the very next day, he wrote the first worship song recorded in the Bible. And believe it or not, it's a worship song that's preserved by the inspiration of the Spirit. And as we'll find out later, this is a worship song that we're going to sing for all eternity. And he did it on the spot, as it were. Really amazing from this man. Yes, the Lord inspired him, but it really demonstrates how talented a leader this man was. But let's get to the introduction a little bit. Let's get up to speed for those of you who haven't been joining us. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus. The people of Israel has been delivered from the land of Egypt. The plagues destroyed the economy of Egypt, destroyed the firstborn, destroyed all sorts of things. And God led his people out of the land of Egypt, and brought them to the edge of a sea. And at this edge of the sea, it was a place of total vulnerability and dependence. We told you last week how nobody's really sure where the crossing of the Red Sea took place. And as a matter of fact, the text is specific that they crossed the Sea of Reeds. The reason God is calling this the Sea of Reeds, we're not totally sure. But we do know that there's some irony in it. Moses, as a baby, was delivered by the Sea of Reeds, a body of water and reeds that protected the basket that Moses was stored away in from the Egyptians who sought his life. And now the Sea of Reeds becomes an object of deliverance and judgment. For God's people, it's salvation, and for God's enemies, it's judgment. And so God leads his people to the edge of this body of water. And God spread the waters of the Red Sea. He blasted this wind with his nostrils, the text says, and the sea parted. The ground dried. The ground was so dry that the Egyptians were able to pursue the Israelites into the body of water. The pillar of cloud went behind the Israelites and stood between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And you might remember... That as the Egyptians were closing in on the Israelites, 
the wheels of their vaunted chariots just popped off. And it says that the chariots drove with great difficulty. We said, yes, that tends to happen when the wheels fall off. <laughs> Try, you could probably drive your car without tires on its rims, but it, it would be fun to watch you try. Well, once the people were safe on the other side, you guys know the story, the water, which had piled up so high, was so magnificent, rushed down and entombed the Egyptian army, the chariots, the crown jewel of their army. All who followed in after them were sunk in the depths of the sea. Bodies were floating up from the far side of the bank for days. And suddenly, inexplicably, immediately, the people realized their salvation. They'd been delivered. They would never, as Moses said, see that army again. They were saved. They were delivered. This conqueror, would-be conqueror, was behind them. Yahweh delivered and destroyed. He judged and redeemed. God is both Savior and Judge. And now, Moses, in the height of this great victory, in the height of this great victory, sits down and promptly writes a hymn for the ages. I was reflecting a little earlier this week. My dad was in town a few months ago, and we went down to a University of Utah football game. They were playing UCLA. Both teams were undefeated at the time. The Utes were going to be without their starting quarterback, and you could feel in the atmosphere of the stadium, nervousness. The, the fans didn't think they could win the game. They were really rooting for their team, but you could tell there was a lot of doubt. They didn't, they didn't think the day was going to go well for them. The very first play of the game, the UCLA quarterback threw the ball, and a University of Utah defender intercepted it and ran it into his own end zone for a touchdown and the stadium nearly collapsed under the weight of the cheering. All that energy, all that nervous, pent-up emotion, doubt, are we going to win? Can we pull this off? Melted in a sudden fury of joy, and the Utes did go on to win the game, but the cheers never got as high as that initial outburst. And you can imagine when the people standing with their mouths agape realized what had just happened, there was probably a clap, and then a shout, and then a hoot, and then the entire nation celebrated. The entire nation erupted with joy. And it was in this climax of emotion, worship, that Moses wrote this song. Now let's talk about Moses' song for just a moment. You may have read, and I spent entirely too much time this week trying to figure out the structure of this poem. I must have read several different theories, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention them in just a moment. Here's what I know. Everybody look at verse 1. Okay, everybody look at verse 1. 
It says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now go down to verse 21. This is the part that the ladies sing. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Do you see any similarities there? <laughs> yes, it's the same line except for the subject. One says, I will sing, and the other is a command that says, sing. That's the only difference. And apparently, that's an indication that this song is supposed to be sung antiphonally. Now, how many of you go, oh yeah, I know what an antiphonal song is. Anybody? Okay, good. Well, what we sang this morning with Shout to the North is an antiphonal song. The men sang, and then the women sang, and then we all together sang. And so this is indicating that this song was sung somehow with responses. There was a male part, and a female part, and a part where they all sung together. Now Moses didn't tell us which parts of those are which, but because this is so repetitive here, that seems to be the case. The divisions of this psalm, I will be honest with you, I don't know where they land. Some scholars say that they revolve around the similes, like in verses 5, 7, and 10. It says they sunk like a stone. Other scholars say that the verses crescendo, and each top of the crescendo is a, is a, um, a cutoff. Look, let me show you an example of the crescendo. Look at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. Okay, That's kind of the baseline. The chariots and the host he cast. His chosen officers, not just his host, but even bigger, his chosen officers, he didn't just cast, they were sunk. They didn't just sink, the floods covered them. And they went down into the depths. See, it's even greater now, like a stone. And that they claim that you can discern these crescendoing moments within the song and those crescendos, the top of the crescendo, marks the end of a section, and then you start over at a baseline, and it crescendos up again. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I looked at those, and I didn't find, and I looked at several others, and I didn't find any of them totally convincing. But if you see that, then great. Go with that. <laughs> I'm not sure. And I, at the end of it, I said, there must be a structure to it, because Moses always writes with structure, but we're going to have to wait I'm going to have to wait till heaven to find out what Moses meant by this structure. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this down into five words that are easily identifiable in the text. And it can be represented with this little, this little phrase. Okay, I've got it on the screen for you, and these will follow our points. The Song of Moses is personal praise past, present, and future. It's personal praise, past, present, and future. For those of you who like alliteration, I failed on the future, but maybe you can forgive me. <laughs> maybe you can pardon me. Personal praise, past, present, and future. Let's talk about the personal component of this praise. I want us to notice how personal this praise is. 
Moses' song is deeply personal. Look with me at verse 1. It begins so personally. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And then we go to verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He's my God. I will praise him. He's my Father's God, and I will exalt him. This is a song that is, as Moses wrote it, it was a reflection of his own praise. How often when we're singing songs in church, do we sing praise in a general sense because we like the tune of the song or we like something about it? But so rarely are we thinking about the fact that that's true for me. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We think, yes, people are redeemed. But what God wants us to do is say, I am redeemed. And he wants that praise to extend from this personal ownership, this personal possession of God's blessing. Look, he says, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. The Lord is my salvation. Moses is also applying personal aspects that are repeated by the ladies. When it's their turn to sing, they too are saying, this is what the Lord has done for me. This is what the Lord has done for us. This song is also personal, and not that it's just personally uh, meditated upon and sung from a personal perspective. This song is sung not to a generic idea, not to a concept general to following God or salvation, but this is a song sung directly to God himself. And this is a case where the original language really helps you out and is so specific. Look again at verse 1. I will sing, and it's clear in the text, to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. This would have been particularly picturesque for the people of Israel because what was the Lord's representation in front of them? It was this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. And they could look up to the person of Yahweh as represented in these, this pillar before them and they could sing to that person. You have done this. Look what you've done. Look what you did. We praise you. We extol you. This is directly directed specifically to Yahweh. And I want you to notice the yous. Look at the yous that are very specific in the text. In verse 6, he says, Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious, or glorious in power. Look at verse 7. In, greatness, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. God says in verse 10, You blew your wind. In verse 11, who is like you. This was a song sung from the depths of personal experience. I have been saved. I am singing to the object of their salvation, to you, O oh God. You have done this. There is no generic in the song of Moses. It is a personal song of praise directed to the person of Yahweh, 
directed personally to God. Now, that's not to say that we should never sing songs directed to God's people. The Psalter is filled with songs that are songs that are words of man exhorting other men, or words of people exhorting other people. In the Psalter, sometimes we sing God's words to us. In the book of Zechariah, we're told that God himself sings over us. So it's not to say that by singing songs that are a little more directed to God's people, that that's somehow wrong. That's not the case at all. But in this particular song, and what I think should be a large part of our worship singing, it's a personal song of praise directed to the person who worked our deliverance and salvation. And that is the essence of worship. I want to praise you. I want to exalt you. It's all very personal and specific. Let's look at the component of praise here. The component of praise. The song exalts the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. He has been exceedingly exalted, the passage might say. He is highly exalted. It means to put on a platform above anything and everything else. Here are people that have been driven out of the land from slavery. They don't own anything. They have the clothes on their back. They have the stuff that the Egyptians gave them. They don't have land yet. They're barely a nation. And yet God exists above all that. God has triumphed gloriously. The song marvels at the uniqueness of God. Twice we say, who is like you? And that's a part of praise. We, we declare God's uniqueness in his authority and his ability to do things that nobody else or no other person, whether heavenly or earthly, can do. God, the great creator of all things, is so utterly unique. And the song is an extended marvel at the unexpected, dramatic, and thorough redemption of God. I think it's hard for us to understand how thorough this salvation must have been. The only way I think we could capture it would be to interview somebody who's been afloat at sea for weeks. Their death is imminent, and suddenly a cruise liner rolls past, <laughs> and they're treated to the king's allotment. As soon as that ship sees them and throws the life ring down, they are saved. Irrevocable. They're not going back to the raft that they were on. It's dramatic. It's full. It's final. A few hours earlier, the army of Egypt was chasing them down to kill them, and now the army of Egypt is washing up on the seaside. The people are utterly free. Their past is utterly cut off. It's broken. The thing that bound them is utterly destroyed. And that is the sense of salvation that God wants us to have as it relates to our sinful past. God can absolutely and totally 
and utterly cut off the sins that hold you in bondage. And you may not feel as delivered as you are, but you are even more delivered than the people of Israel were. God has dealt with our sins so thoroughly and so dramatically and so finally. And he wants us to just stand back and marvel at how, in a moment, he destroyed all those evil forces that hold us back and hold us down and hold us captive. And he wants you to rest and say, with Christ, it's finished. It's finished. And the life of faith moving forward is coming to grips with the fact that it's finished. And evermore letting our songs drift up. Let's look at these three words, past, present, and future. I knew we'd be running a little short on time. Also, I do apologize. My watch um, stopped working uh, Friday, and so if I go long, I can blame my missing watch. I know I have a clock in the back, but it's really hard to see. And so, also, I don't know when I started. I never look up and see what time I started, so I don't know how long I've gone. I can blame Pastor Chris for making the announcements too long. You know, it wouldn't work. I know we're needing to get through this material. But past, present, and future. The, if you were to read through this psalm, you could easily categorize the things God did, the things God is doing, and the things God will do. And I think that's a very reasonable and good way to kind of break up this psalm. What are the, some of the things he did? Well, he delivered. He became my salvation, verse 2. He led, he redeemed, he guided us, verse 13. Yahweh judged, he hurled his enemies into the sea. He drowned them. He shattered them. He threw them down. He consumed them. He unleashed his breath, verse 8. And here we see this praise for what God has done. I'd like to draw your attention specifically to verse 13 because it's a verse that you can claim moving forward. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now, friends, when the people of Israel were the bait in the trap, and they were sitting there on the edge of the sea, and they saw Pharaoh's chariots approaching, would they have said, God, you led us here? Well, they did. They said, you led us here because there weren't enough tombs in Egypt. It didn't occur to them that God led them there, and they were perfectly safe. Did God lead Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace? Did God lead Daniel into the lion's den? Did God lead the Apostle Paul before Caesar? Did God lead Stephen before his accusers? Yes. Most of the time, in the passages I just mentioned, they were never safer 
They were never saved. And Stephen, God simply took home before any damage was felt by him. You may be finding yourself in a difficult spot right now. And you may be looking around, wondering, how did I get here? I want you to know God led you there. And you could not be in a better place. <laughs> It could very well be that the thing that you see as the instrument of your destruction will turn to be the instrument of your deliverance. God leads in his steadfast love those whom he's redeemed. Are you redeemed? Then you're where you're supposed to be. So don't look around backward wondering how did I get here. Look forward and think, God, what do you want me to do next? God has led you. God will guide you. He continues to guide you. His steadfast love brought you to this place, and his steadfast love will lead you out. What are the present acts of Yahweh that are worthy of personal praise? Well, verses 2 and 3, he's our strength and he's our defense. Verse 18, his very name, the self-existent one, the eternal one, conveys his sovereignty. Verse 18, the Lord will reign. Yahweh, the self-existent one, will reign forever and ever. He's reigning right now. We were in his hands then. We're in his hands now. We'll be in his hands in the future. There's this timeless aspect of the timeless one who's reigning forever and ever. And then the future acts of Yahweh that are worthy of personal praise. Verses 14 through 16. Oh, that Israel would remember this in a little bit of time, but they forget it. But what God did in the past informs what he will do in the future. And it says that God will strike fear into the heart of Israel's enemies, verses 14 through 16. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. In about 40 years, the Israelites are going to come to a town and Rahab the, Rahab the harlot, 40 years from now, is going to say, our hearts are melting like wax because of what Yahweh has done. People stood up and took notice. God put a bit of a shield of protection around his people. And Moses is saying right here, right now, look, we can take what God has done, what we just saw God do, and reason with faith forward and conclude of what God will do. And so when you look at what God has forgiven you in the past, faith says reason forward to the blessings that God will bring you moving forward. That's not presumption, that's faith. And this song is intended to deepen and reaffirm that conviction that God will continue to watch over us and care for us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Verse 13 as we said before, he'll continue to guide us in verse 17. He will establish. He will establish. What a song. What a song. We're not done singing. Did you know that? Would everybody please turn with me to Revelation chapter 15? I think it's fitting that the song was written in Exodus 15. 
And we hear about it again in Revelation 15. Revelation is the last book of your Bible. So if you make your way to the very back, you'll find Revelation. This is written 1,400 years and change later, a millennia and a half later, by John the Apostle. Then I saw, verse 1, another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. He sees this translucent flame, perfectly smooth, glowing, looking like, looking and rippling like fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, these are Christians, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And what did they sing? People standing next to a sea of glass who've overcome, who've seen God champion their cause, and they sing the song of Moses. They sing the song of Moses. Because God has gloriously taken up their cause. God has overthrown the horse and the rider in their case. God has triumphed gloriously for them the same song that the children of Israel sang when Pharaoh's hordes sunk into the depths of the Red Sea. So we will sing next to the sea of glass as we see how God triumphs for us. And with the benefit of heaven for perspective to know all the things that God has done for us that we know nothing about right now, we will sing the song of Moses. That was our first conclusion. We're going to sing the song of Moses. If you're in the Lord, if you've asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, this can be your song both now and forevermore. Moses wrote this song for people other than themselves, he wrote it for you and for me as well. He wants us to personalize this song and continue to sing it, for we'll sing it in heaven with the angelic host. The second thing I'd like to notice is this sort of praise, this sort of spur of the moment, antiphonal, loud, faith-filled, personal praise directed to the person of God. Listen, let's stop there. Don't you want to sing like that? When Nathan stands up to lead our singing, don't you want to be able to lift your voice and sing? If you're redeemed, you do. How do you get there? How do you get there? Is it a matter of voice lessons? Is it a matter of pushing air out of your, I don't know anything about singing. Is it a matter of pushing air harder and doing it louder? Well, maybe. 
but ultimately not. The thing that will make our church a singing church like Revelation 15 described, or like the people of Israel were singing, the thing that will make us a singing people is for us, through the week, to become overwhelmed by the enormity of our salvation. Why did Israel suddenly turn into a choir? Because their salvation was immediately in front of them. They saw it with their own eyes, and Pharaoh's army was there, and then it was gone. And they were delivered. Friends, it wasn't the plagues that got them to sin. The plagues got them out. The plagues made them worry that they were next. It was the deliverance, it was the salvation that set their hearts to sin. And the way for us to become a singing people that's filled with this personal praise directed to a person is to let the overwhelming enormity of our salvation settle into our souls day in and day out. And so begin to praise the Lord throughout the day that when we come and gather with God's people, that is already in there. That gratitude is already in there. And we open our mouths and sing, how great is our What a redeemer. What a king. Who is like because we've been talking to him all week and marveling at him all week, it's no stretch for us to remember, oh, I need to sing this personally to him. It just comes as natural as swimming to a duck. Swimming doesn't come natural to most of us, but it does to ducks. If we want to become singing people, and I believe God wants us to be, the secret us individually meditating on the gravity of our salvation and letting that inform us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this song. We praise you that you've delivered us so fully and finally. When Jesus lifted up his head and said, it's finished, it really was finished. There's nothing that we can add to Christ's sacrifice. You've paid for us by the blood of the Lamb, and for all who put their hope in you, you promise to save and to save gloriously. And so now we look back, as it were, at our past, seeing the enemies that held us back, that threatened to hold us down till our death, and we see them conquered, defeated, swept up, wiped away forevermore. And we see your son triumphing over them. He rose from the dead and killed our greatest enemy. We fall at his feet and we worship and we thank you for this grace. May we sing mightily for you have triumphed gloriously. And all God's people say, Amen. At this time, Nathan's going to come lead us in a final song.
I like to slip to the back and greet people as they leave. If you want to say hello, I'd love to chat with you on your way out. But anything, please come now and meet us in front of us.